0: Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy, and anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free.
1: This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class.
2: Person. Listen to Chasing Life, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Hi, I'm Ethan Adelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drug. Hello, Psychoactive listeners. You know, we've done quite a number of episodes on the issue of the overdose epidemic in America and the role of Purdue Farm and other firms in promoting this. And we've done some on Mexico and drug trafficking. Today, we have somebody who's done some really cutting-edge work at the intersection of all this. And that's Sam Canonis. He's been a journalist for about 35 years, including 10 years at the Los Angeles Times, well known for his reporting on Mexico and on Mexicans in the U.S. About six, seven years ago, he published a book called Dreamland about the opioid crisis in the United States, and it won a bunch of awards. And just last year, the end of last year, he came out with a new book called The Least of Us, which really is a sequel to that book. It traces the evolution of the opioid epidemic from the days of pills into heroin, into fentanyl, and weaves it together with a story of methamphetamine reemerging in parts of the United States where it's almost never been in really scary ways. And he sets all that in the context of parts of America, both going through the devastation of drugs and then recovering in various ways and makes some interesting analogies to other addictions and things like addictions plaguing American society. So, Sam, thanks so much for joining me today uh, on Psychoactive.
3: Very nice to be with you. Thanks very much for having me, Ethan.
2: I read your latest book intensely and, and I found it, I have to say, highly engaging. I learned a lot in it. I think you tell a wonderful story. I also had some issues with the way you presented things and some of your policy solutions and your framing. So we'll get, we'll, I think we'll go back and forth in this. We'll mix it up a bit. But why don't I first ask you to say, so if you're summing up the story of this most recent book, The Least of Us, what's your, uh, your short version of what this book is about?
3: <laughs> oh, man. It's about how our opioid epidemic Ignited the creativity and the profit motive of the Mexican trafficking world. And along the way, providing us with heroin, they discovered fentanyl could be made in a lab. And it's the story, too, of how they become really just synthetic drug producers mostly now. And that this is extraordinarily uh, a deadly, harmful thing for the country of the United States. Well, Mexico, too, I have to say. And at the same time, though, along with that, I find great hope possible because all of this is really awakening us, I think, to or pointing us to the idea that how thoroughly we have shredded a community in this country in many, many ways. And that that's one of the most powerful forces that we have as, as human beings. Uh, we have evolved to not find it nice to have community, but essential, crucial, and without really a substitute. And we have certainly in the last 40 years gone about shredding. A lot of that and isolating ourselves and leaving us vulnerable. What that means is that these epidemics are showing us that is the great defense uh, as community. We, we Really, it's more powerful, I think, than dope in, in a lot of ways because we find it so essential to our survival. We exist as a species, really, because of that. The idea was to draw out those two forces as ways of saying, this is what we have and mm-hmm. this is the way we can respond if we'll learn from it.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I have to say, because I saw some analogy in your book, you had these stories, right, of people sort of descending into the depths of drug addiction and then coming out of it and beginning to lead more wholesome and better lives. Not everybody, some crash and burn and don't make it. And then you have a similar analogous story around community. So, I want to get to that, but let's dig more deeply first into what's gone on with the drug stuff, because many of our psychoactive listeners will have some sophisticated understanding of this stuff. They'll know that there was the history, that heroin has heroin epidemics going back in America multiple times, right? The era of the 60s and 70s, there's another recurrence. They know the story about, you know, Purdue Farm and the other pharmaceutical companies who uh, overpromote they create a wonderful drug, OxyContin, which is fantastic for certain types of pain patients, but over-promoted aggressively in ways which are really quite reprehensible and where they may finally be being held to account. We know the sort of crackdown on that. And the story you described in your previous book, Dreamland, was about you know how that the Mexican traffickers saw this opportunity to get into heroin. Sure. And not to, they'd been into heroin, right? Oftentimes been the number one one. But they got very sophisticated on it, distributed the networks all around America. And that's part of your story, the Democratization, but you pick the story up really around fentanyl. And fentanyl, you know, as I think many of our listeners know, it's a pharmaceutical drug. It's a fantastic drug for pain. And in this case, we're not talking about fentanyl being diverted from legal channels in America. We're talking about fentanyl that begins to come out of China, and then where the supply shifts to Mexico. And I wonder if you could pick up the story right there.
3: Well, yes. I mean, our illicit quantities of of supplies of fentanyl came really in the largest supplies first from from Chinese chemical companies who found that it was a decent business proposition to sell it over the dark web or the open Internet, depending on the chemical company. And they began to to do this, I would say 2013, 14, 15, certainly, 16, got very into it. And they sent it through the mail. Mostly, you know, just the regular mail just sending it to in pounds or half kilos or um you know a quarter kilo smallish amounts through the mail, and these were individual chemical companies selling this to people who who contacted them on the dark web. so I would say the the first place that happened was in the, the states hit hardest by the opioid epidemic, I would say uh, Ohio, West Virginia, Kentucky, where you first begin to see these explosions of you know, 70 overdoses in one weekend and, and that kind of thing, Huntington, Cincinnati. And part of their customer base was the trafficking world in Mexico as well. And they began to, to send up quantities of, metho- of fentanyl sorry, that were substantial, although not anything like what they're doing now. The sign that that was changing comes in about 2017, where it's clear then at that point that Mexicans have figured out or are figuring out how to make fentanyl themselves.
2: So let me stop you right there, because one of the things I found fascinating in your analysis is that you describe one of the manufacturers, a guy named Gordon Chin, or Jin J-I-N. And you said that one of the things he was doing was when he would send the fentanyl, right? And of course, this made sense economically in small packages because it's 50 to 100 times more potent per milligram or microgram than heroin is. So you get a real bang for your buck. But then when he was sending out, he would include The chemical abstract service number, a dedicated number number that each drug in the pharmacopeia has, just like every book in the library has a dedicated uh, number. And also the nuclear magnetic resonance NMR spectroscopy test about the purity, which I had never heard about this. And that suggested that there was a level of sophistication in the information that he was providing to the people, the distributors in the U.S., and ultimately, you know, initially in Mexico or Canada, who were getting this from him. And that seemed to be a piece of the international drug trafficking pie that I'd not heard much about before, that level of chemical sophistication.
3: I think this was possible because these are chemical companies. They're used to dealing with this data, with these numbers, with this information. And I think in some measure, to the people that... He was dealing with that I wrote about, it, not so much, but certainly in some measure, he was dealing with people who were used to ordering chemicals through, in the world, chemical market legally and so on. And so providing this information was actually, I think, second nature and seemed to be kind of a way of quality control. And I think that that was a, a competitive benefit of dealing with him. And I think others did this as well, though. In my understanding, that was not the only chemical company that provided that information as if the drug were... A normal legal drug that you would buy legally.
2: So initially, the Mexicans presumably are importing it from China and then shipping it in bigger things through the distribution channels into the U.S. Right. But then, when they start, you know, hiring their own chemists, many of them Mexican chemists, some of them foreign chemists, are they doing the same thing that Jin did? Are they also providing that kind of information? No,
3: no, they're they're selling it kilo blocks. They're selling it through the normal clandestine trafficking routes that come up through Tijuana into San Diego, Nogales into Nogales, Arizona, uh, Juarez into El Paso, etc. They're smuggling it. They're in clandestine ways. and, And no, there's nothing illicit about what they're doing. In some cases, they're sending it up in powder form or just kind of kilo blocks of the stuff. In 2017, you begin to see the first seizures of counterfeit pills that are designed, pressed, and and printed as if they were a pharmaceutical pill. The first ones are oxycodone, generic 30 milligrams, known as pressed blues, 30 milligram pills.
2: It sounds to me at the beginning stages they're cutting heroin with it as well. It's a way to sell, market as heroin and stretch it, and then at some point the heroin disappears from the mix and it becomes all
3: fentanyl. Yeah, I think that was happening more locally, Uh though. I I think that was happening, uh, people would buy fentanyl and then mix it. The, the guy that I wrote about in the book who sold the, the fentanyl to Tommy Rao, who eventually the a kid I wrote about in the, in the book who died, he was mixing it himself. That's where the, the magic bullet blender becomes part of the story, where there's this myth in the underworld that the best way to mix your fentanyl is with a magic bullet blender. I, I would say, just by way of a side, that Magic Bullet blenders are fantastic little instruments. We own one. It's of course abysmal little machine for mixing your fentanyl and it's, that's the case because it's got a blade and fentanyl is a powder. Magic Bullets mix liquid very well, they don't mix powders at all. And But yet this idea took hold and narcotics agents began to find the Magic Bullet blender at different mixed sites that they would raid, particularly early on in certain areas like Columbia, I think uh, was, uh, was happened somewhat, but certainly Ohio, Kentucky, West Virginia, you, see, you see this thing show up because it's people who are seeing fentanyl as representing lottery-like profits. Mm-hmm. The only problem is to realize those profits, they have to mix fentanyl with inert powders. Fentanyl is so potent that a few grains, the equivalent of a few grains of salt is 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 enough to kill your pain, a couple more, and it'll kill you. And so you can't sell that on the street. That's a very small amount of, of drug. You have to mix it. To be able to commercially sell it, you have to mix it. And this meant was the first time, I think, in the, in the history of the drug trade where enormous profits are associated with the ability of common, ordinary schmoes to to mix this stuff in their mom's kitchen or in their basement or their bathroom. And this myth is perpetrated, that that is spread that that this is a magnificent thing to do with a magic bullet blender because I think one of the reasons was because the magic bullet has a plastic bubble. And so you don't have the, maybe the same inhalation of, of fumes and dust that you might just mixing it in a bowl, that kind of thing. But it gives you the idea of how badly that works.
2: Yeah. Sam, I, ha- I have to tell you something, actually. That piece of, in your book about the magic bullet blenders was something I had never heard before. And it answered a few questions for me. And it was, it was like the entire book, it was the thing that much, most jumped out at me because it made the issue also about the sort of inconsistency in supply. One of the things I've been incredibly frustrated with is with 100,000 people dying of overdoses last year, overwhelmingly opioids, overwhelmingly fentanyl right now, that the National Institute on Drug Abuse seems to be devoting almost no attention to trying to figure out, you know, doing ethnographies that interview the dealers, the street dealers, the dealers one level up. Or when cops are locking up huge numbers of people, why aren't we trying to get cops or jailers to offer people who've been locked up an opportunity to make some money by being interviewed about what they were doing, you know, in return for not being pressed for their charges? so we can find out what that mixing process is. And I remember you know, as cannabis started to become legal and as edibles become, became more common, one of the challenges initially was how do you make sure if you're making a cannabis chocolate bar that each five gram square has the same amount of THC as the other ones. And I think now they've got that down. And, you know, obviously companies know how to do that. But it sounds like in the whole fentanyl area, that was a real challenge. And I wonder, do you know, has there been an evolution where you see a lot less of magic blenders these days and a lot more sophistication in evening it out?
3: The Mexicans have done that. With uh, Yeah, they I would say that the magic bullet blender had its moment a few years there and generally has faded. Of course, it was also... It was a magic bullet blender that stood out to narcotics. Agents. It was also coffee grinders and other kind of bizarre machinery that was used to, to mix this. But, but, um, but I would say that that kind of faded. Um, and, and one reason it faded, I think, was that, first of all, the mix was, was happening down in Mexico more. They were making it and they were mixing it down there, especially in, into these counterfeit pills that I mentioned earlier. First, it was 30 milligram generic oxycodone. Than it was um, Xanax bars and Percocets and lookalikes, you know, counterfeits, and so you you don't have the same need to you just buy these pills, you know. Why do you want to mix it and and so on? I would say though that most most of the mixing when it when it does happen is still at the local level, and I agree with you. I, I in fact I've done some of that e- ethnography to find out, but not. I'm just one reporter. There's there's. I'm not sure, you know, entire country's full of people who are doing this now. There's many things to learn from from folks who are sitting in jail as I've basically used my entire career, essentially, um, to find st- this stuff out. But but I, I would say that, that a lot of that is happening at the local uh, level or the mid-level. I don't think it's so much happening down in Mexico anymore. And it makes sense that that would not be the case because... Down in Mexico, it makes sense to just ship up a kilo of fentanyl. I mean,
2: it's just more efficient. Yeah. The whole story you tell, and the same thing happens when we get into the methamphetamine story, it's an age-old story, right? It's the way in which we had to shift from opium to heroin 100 years ago when you had the crackdown there. The way in which you saw the shift from opium to heroin in East Asia when they cracked down on opium production, they shifted to heroin. The shift from uh, cannabis to cocaine in 1980s with the Caribbean crackdown. The shift from beer and wine to hard liquor during alcohol prohibition. So it's an age-old story, right, of, of the distributors, the manufacturers wanting to get the biggest bang for their buck to ship the most potent compact products, the least detectable product and all this thing. When the stuff comes into the U.S., it seems that initially it's the East Coast getting hit by fentanyl, parts of the East Coast more than West Coast. No, I I would say it
3: would be Midwest.
2: Midwest, 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 yeah.
3: Yeah. I would say that that was the first place that I was aware of, and also 2000, what was it, 14 or 15? I'm losing track now. But it's the areas that were worst hit by the opioid epidemic, in my, in my view, is really where that started. Then it goes both directions. It goes out, out from Ohio and Kentucky and Indiana and, mm-hmm. and Tennessee and West Virginia and those states. It goes to East and, and West, but I would say mm-hmm. ends up in the West Coast last. The first real problem that anyone saw with with fentanyl was in, in California, was in mm-hmm. Chico, I, I think, where they had nine people, was it nine or seven? I can't remember people fall out and uh, overdose, and, and they saved, I said they saved all of them actually, but that was the first time anyone, and this was in rural Butte County, way up north in, in California, where they were just not expecting that, that at all. And so it, it began to spread, but I think the first. Yeah. People to buy it were the folks who figured out that they could buy it from these Chinese companies, and then it was this, as I say, lottery-like profit were associated with it. They just had to mix it, and when they mixed it, they did a poor job of it.
2: I think you also say that some of them can't believe that it's fifty to hundred times more potent than heroin is. It's almost unbelievable that that yeah. infinitesimal amount could be getting the same bang, bang for the buck.
3: Oh, I think I think in fact, if you read the book, you saw the first chapters about. The, the chemist in, in Toluca, Mexico, who, who was making, with the funding from the Sinaloa drug cartel, was making the f- fentanyl. They thought he want they wanted him to make ephedrine. He starts making fentanyl. He clues them in for the first time. That's really the first time the Mexican drug world get, got wind of this thing called fentanyl that was a substitute, a synthetic substitute for heroin. And he does these tests on his fentanyl and figures out that it'll actually take a 50 to one cut. So one kilo will make 50 of, Saleable kilos on the streets Mm of some city in the United States. He sends that information with the people he gives. But, and my understanding from the agents is that nobody in Chicago believed it. It sounded like a myth, like 50 to 1. Are you crazy? People are always overselling their dope. They're always saying, oh, you can. This is a five to one cut. You can take this, this is cut five. Yeah. Cut. you know, People come in with 50 to one and nobody believed it. So nobody really cut it that much. And that's why you had this massive death toll that came and went with that one lab down in Toluca, Mexico.
2: The other thing I, I picked up from sort of my networks was that in the early years of fentanyl coming in five, six, seven years ago, that a lot of consumers basically. They didn't like the fentanyl as much as the heroin initially. It was oh, no. a different type of thing. And oftentimes they were getting—they were being told they were getting heroin, but it was heroin being cut or displaced by fentanyl. And what's actually happened over the last four or five years, as fentanyl has basically displaced heroin in the United States, is that these people now prefer fentanyl. Fentanyl's become the new thing they like. And they get heroin, they almost go like, what's this? Or I don't like it as much anymore.
3: I'm not sure I'd put it that way. I would say they're now addicted to fentanyl. You know, to me, that's that's not a preference. That's a, that control of the brain that really has nothing to do with free will and a choice. The traffickers are saying, we're, you, we're giving you fentanyl. And yeah, today on the streets of many parts of America, heroin is worthless. It will not get rid of the dope sickness. But I was just speaking with the guy from an addict in Maine. He was very clear he doesn't like fentanyl. He doesn't still doesn't like fentanyl. A few reasons for that. One is that at first fentanyl was uh, to him and there was no heroin in the area and he just, he was strung out. So he had to use it. So he used it. And at first it was like a massive financial savings, but eventually very quickly he got addicted to it and very quickly his use tripled because fentanyl, the, the key thing about fentanyl, the reason it's such a great drug for anesthesia is what makes it a bad drug for a user it's, it's quick in and quick out. For an anesthesia, that's fantastic. You can do a two-hour uh, surgery on somebody, and that person can be removed from anesthesia and, and be lucid, and I, it happened to me. And it's what allowed fentanyl to revolution, revolutionize surgery in, in anesthesia in America. But for an addict, that means you have to be constantly using it all day long. My understanding is the high is nice. But the main problem, I think, for a lot of people is there's no longer like a, a six-hour period where, where you're not using. You're always – this guy told, told me I was using twice a day, two grams of heroin a day. And with fentanyl, it was six times a day, five, six times a day, uh, seven grams of fentanyl. I'm sorry. And so you see this – yeah, displacement. I was in a homeless encampment in Nashville uh, where I'm now living about – what was it? Like around Thanksgiving mm-hmm. – and I met a guy, and he's a longtime heroin addict. And, and he said, that Some guy shot, came by our encampment offering black tar heroin, straight up legitimate black tar heroin. And I told him, Man, I can't buy that. What's that going to do? I need fentanyl. Nobody is. So once you get through that mm-hmm. period mm-hmm. where you have survived fentanyl, you're now addicted to fentanyl. At that point, heroin is yeah. worthless. And I think that's, we're seeing that in many parts of the country. Yeah, yeah. Even though they call it heroin, that's the bizarre thing. I've been in several parts of Tennessee where they say, no, I bought heroin. There's no heroin in the stuff. They know there's no heroin in it, but they still use it, use the terminology.
2: Yeah, no, I have to tell you, I just went up to record an episode up at the Overdose Prevention Center, the safe injection site, a drug consumption that just opened up in East Harlem. And there, basically, the staff working there are saying almost everything's got fentanyl in it. And then I interviewed one of the clients there, and he was saying, oh, yeah, heroin sometimes, but it seems like exactly what you're saying there. It also raises some questions about whether the fentanyl thing's more likely to burn itself out. All drugs go through their phases, right? We go through the heroin phase, burns itself out. And crack particularly was one where crack came on like crazy first in the, New York and the big cities and then in the smaller cities. And then at some point it burns it out and a younger generation turns their back on it and shifts to 40s in a blunt and maybe beating up crackheads or something like that. And so with fentanyl, if it's that drug which doesn't actually make people feel as good, especially early on, and if it has to be used repeatedly like that, it suggests fentanyl, it's taken over for now, but
3: maybe we'll see what but here's the thing. I mean, with fentanyl, yes, I, I think that's, that's certainly a possibility. And I think we'd all welcome it. The problem is this, that this is a drug almost entirely uh, from, the, from a trafficker's point of view. It doesn't have anything to do with what the customer wants. It makes total business sense from a trafficker's point of view, as I said in the book. And, and so it doesn't matter what people switch to. We've already seen that fentanyl can be mixed with it. Methamphetamine, there's some examples, not many, it's rare, but certainly some examples of marijuana being uh, adulterated with fentanyl, certainly cocaine. So whatever you switch to, fentanyl is so cheap. It's like salt on food, the way we use salt on food. And, and, And so you can put fentanyl in anything. And the key thing there is once you do that a little bit, and pretty soon you replace that occasional cocaine user with a daily opioid user, and that person doesn't have the, uh, the ability to choose anymore. That's a, that's a thing.
2: One of the things I took a little bit of issue with what you said is at one point you said the traffickers after just make creating you know hiring chemists to make ever more potent substances. And I, I don't think that's quite exactly right, because if that was right, carfentanil would have replaced fentanyl by now carfentanil is many times more powerful than fentanyl. We had that horrible carfentanil outbreak in Ohio where people were dropping dead like flies. Then it stopped and it's not spreading. So there's a point at which it's not really about potency. It is a seller's market. And they're, what they're basically looking at is what's going to make them the most money. And ultimately, when you're putting stuff out there, you want what the consumers are going to pay for, what they're going to buy for. You know, If you shift the incentives, it's just like with alcohol prohibition. When that gets repealed, the taste for hard liquor becomes an ever-diminishing part of overall alcohol consumption because lots of people don't want that. And there's another thing you were writing. You kept talking about marijuana and this high-potency marijuana. There's no such thing as recreational drug use anymore. And I'm going, what the hell are you talking about, Sam? Of course it's recreational drug use. The vast majority of people use marijuana using it recreationally. And we know when dabbing came along, it's not like everybody went to dabbing, which is like the crack version of marijuana. Basically, the producers are going to keep doing what's going to make them the most money. And for consumers, it's going to be what works for them.
3: Yeah. And with fentanyl, they've seen that fentanyl makes them the most money when it turns occasional users into fentanyl Mm addicts. That is what's going on now. And so what I meant by that is that there is no risk-free recreational drug use anymore. You can be given a pill at a party and that that pill can look exactly like a Percocet and maybe even seen a Percocet. If you use that pill from this trusted friend, it's very likely that'll have fentanyl in it. And so the, the way traffickers work is the, the way they make their most money is by making sure that people get addicted to fentanyl. That's what makes them. Yeah.
2: Sam, you realize you just made a pretty strong argument for legal regulation of these drugs, right? If the greatest danger is this stuff being adultery and stuff like that. So it is truly a risk. But let's shift to your story on methamphetamine, because I think people are aware, you know, methamphetamine has been around in some parts of the country for many decades. Before that, you know, amphetamine was a common thing in the 50s. And then it shows up big time in the South, the Western places. Hawaii's had it for many decades. I remember 20 years ago when all of a sudden the meth craze became the big thing. And all these mom and pop little meth labs pop around the country and people sometimes blowing themselves up. And and then we read about the Mexicans kind of like, well, we'll take this over. Instead of your crappy meth, we'll start producing high quality meth. But then there's something else that happened, which also I knew almost nothing about till I read about it in your book, which was the evolution from ephedrine-based meth to this thing P2P. So please tell us that story.
3: Sure. And, and P2P-based meth is really an old method. My connection to methamphetamine began when I was a crime reporter in the city of Stockton, California, and there was a whole part of Stockton that had a lot of meth in it. And it was really still the biker kind of guys. That's how, you know, the Hells Angels, you see in the, the Gimme Shelter the documentary of the Rolling Stones, you see the Hells Angels, and that's really, mm-hmm. I think, most Americans awakening to what methamphetamine was, and then you get can't heat with speed kills and all that stuff.
2: And that's 50 years ago, basically.
3: That's in the 1960s. Yeah, 69 is when Altamont uh, took place, right? Exactly. Yeah. But they made it in this way that was really not a good way to make, no one would ever choose to make methamphetamine the P2P method because it's very messy, it stinks, it's a lot of chemicals, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's more complicated, it's more less efficient. The ephedrine method is far better if you have that opportunity. And that's how the Mexican trafficking world industrialized methamphetamine was with the ephedrine method. For beginning in the late 80s, talk about it in the book, through the 90s, that you get these kind of nodes of ex- expertise developing certainly around Guadalajara, Sinaloa too. Labs at the time were like, 20 pound, 30, 100 pound labs that they would produce per cook and that kind of thing. And time went on, it grew and grew and and, and more and more people learned how to do it and so on. And then in 2008, the Mexican government really responding to a few pressures. One was from a a scandal that had taken place. I talk about a Chinese fellow involved in all this as well. They put regulations on the importation of ephedrine. Only ph- certain pharmaceutical companies can possess it. And at that point, there begins a general migration away from the Fedrin method, although it's still used from time to time. I think it's generally the meth seized in the United States, tested by DEA chemists, is increasingly becoming the meth that is made with P2P. P2P has one benefit and one benefit only over the traf- over the Fedrin method, and that is you can make P2P many, many different ways. It's, it's not difficult to make it with a variety of industrial chemicals that are all legal, cheap, easily available, et cetera, toxic too. And they begin to make it that way. And, and so whenever the government cracks down on this batch of chemicals... Well, they ship to another way of making P2B. Anyway, what it allows them to do if they control the ports, which they do, is import all these chemicals and begin to make quantities of methamphetamine that Ephedra never allowed them to make. And so you begin to see an explosion of producers down in Mexico. We think of these things as cartels. I don't really ever really use the, the term cartels down uh, to describe what's going on down in Mexico. That's not what they are. Cartels are like OPEC, you know, where you control, you, you constrict, Product to force price up. The groups down in Mexico, trafficking organizations down in Mexico do the opposite. They charge for permission. So they charge for permission to cook or make your drugs in their area. It's basically lots of fiefdoms under a general umbrella.
2: We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. you and I have the exact same perspective on this. I always thought the use of the phrase cartel was bullshit, right? Because they're not acting like OPEC, right? These are groups competing. They don't have the ability. And and, and in fact, I sometimes wonder if the reason it became popular, because we didn't used to talk about heroin cartels. I think it became popular. This is just my speculation uh, with cocaine cartels because of the alliteration. Cocaine (laughs) cartels had a buzz to it, even though it didn't make any sense. And then we just got caught with the word. And I'll tell you, by the way, I just found an example of a Mexican cartel tell in the news a couple days ago where they're acting like a cartel, on the control of lines. They were taking over avocados <laughs> right, in Jalisco. Yeah. It turns out there's now cartel action because it's coming, because it's an agricultural product, because it's coming just from one part of Mexico, they actually can engage in cartel
3: behavior and they're kicking up the price. Right.
2: And it's the, one of the first examples I've seen of a Mexican right. cartel actually acting like a cartel.
3: Yeah, I find it interesting that the DEA doesn't use that term either, mm-hmm. by the way. They use DTO, drug trafficking organizations. That's a far better descriptive thing. I would say that the Colombians were more akin to cartels. There was differences, of course. I don't want to get too far into that. But the Mexicans have no resemblance to what I would consider, having studied economics so many years ago, decades ago, to a cartel. They are loose confederations of fiefdoms, and controls of those fiefdoms change and morph, and there's lots of battles for these things within and without. They benefit from people producing more, not less. They benefit in the following ways. They benefit by selling permission to be able to make your drugs in their area. They benefit by selling you the chemicals. And they also, some of them, not all of these groups, but some of them benefit by charging tolls into the United States. Chapo Guzman was huge into that. That's why the, the tunnels and all. They would choose you. You pay thirty grand, fifty grand, hundred grand. And you use the tunnels and under that kind of thing.
2: I remember one of the theories around why all that violence happened in Ciudad Juarez about fifteen years ago. You know, it was essentially that's one of the one of the groups that had been just allowing cannabis to go through and just tax, and just basically controlling the cocaine, started to crack down and no longer giving the sort of free passage. So yeah, very much consistent with what you're saying right there.
3: Yeah, well, I would say in, in Juarez it was a little different story though. You know, the great tragedy of Mexico is connected to the fact that Chapo Guzman uh, left prison. I have to say, I, I believe that he starts the wars that start everything. He starts the, the wars hmm. when he gets out with the Tijuana cartel, who he, who he hates. These guys are all from Sinaloa, okay? All the cartels are from Sinaloa, except when you get down to the I use cartel, but whatever. Down to into southern Texas, and then it becomes a whole different world, a whole mm-hmm. different culture of drug trafficking organization, which I'm happy to talk about.
2: Okay, no, but let's 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 stick on the methamphetamine thing because you're describing this evolution, right? Where the pseudoephedrine—I mean, first the U.S. cracks down on it, then China cracks down on pseudoephedrine, then Mexico cracks down. And they shift to P2P, and you're basically saying that now, throughout much that we're now seeing meth emerging. Yes all around the United States, including in places it's never been, including in Black communities that were never that into meth using before, and of a different sort. And so one of your claims, it's a more provocative one, and that's hard to, and that you have good anecdotal evidence on, but where people are wondering, is this P2P is it something special? Is a it a new question. type of meth doing something differently, or is it simply that methamphetamine now, because it's so cheap to produce, is as you point out, it's much more potent and much cheaper than it ever used to be, which could also help explain why we're seeing these terrible meth problems.
3: Absolutely. All of that could be all of that could be possible. I would say that. And again, it's not been studied. There's no neuroscience, as I said in the book. There's no rat in my studies and so on, all this stuff. But yes, it's everywhere. It's in quantities that stagger the mind. And there's no general region anyway of the country where where you don't find it. And again, yes, absolutely. It's in the black community now, which just stunned me because I've been doing this work for years and years, dating back to Stockton in 1988. I have never known one single black person to ever buy sell, use, or know anything about methamphetamine until the last few years. And so it's changed a couple of things on your question. One is that it could very well be that this is because it's just so potent and so prevalent that it is creating or, or accom- accompanied by whatever terminology you want to use, very profound symptoms of mental illness, and then homelessness, and then tent encampments with that. However, I have found... Other people, and again, this is, it could be that all of this is true, right? It could be that in one area, they're getting methamphetamine from Guasabe Sinaloa. In another area, they're getting methamphetamine from Guadalajara, Jalisco, and it could be different. That's why they, we need substantial studies on this stuff to understand what's going on here. But I have known, and just was talking with a guy from Michigan who, who said that he has been in and out of methamphetamine for a number of years. He remembers distinctly when it changed. Absolutely, he remembers almost the date. Is was late a Friday in late June of 2012 when he used it. All of a sudden, it was a party drug before. He's gay. He was in the gay community where it was a big deal. And all of a sudden, it became this sinister thing where all these demons were chasing him and it never returned the euphoria of and the party kind of nature of the drug. And every time he uses it, it happens. So the idea that, oh, it's people using this a lot, always con- always available to them, always a lot. And that's what drives them to these expressions of, of mental illness. On the other hand, I think I've met several people now who are telling me this is stuff that, that immediately, no matter how little you use and how rare it's, the, the use is, it'll immediately drive you to... That's what happened to me, is what they're telling me. So... To me, this is, as I say in the book, yes. There's no neuroscience on this. I, I think there is ample evidence of this.
2: You know, also you raise the possibility about whether there might be a certain adulterants in the P2P that there might be different. That's possible
3: too. The old pseudoephedrine
2: stuff, the, the meth labs—they were had all kinds of crap in there. In fact, exactly one of right. the bizarre things is when was is when it shifted to Mexican production. To some respects, the Mexican meth was made with less crap. But so you had some of the bigger meth labs that were higher quality meth, which interestingly were problematic because they were cheaper, but might have actually presented a few less consequences for the consumer because there was less crap. And I also tell you, I talked uh, a couple days ago to somebody who I interviewed earlier on Psychoactive a few months ago, who I think you interviewed for your books, Dan Chicharron, who's a university, UCSF researcher. And I think he just got a grant from National Institute of Drug Abuse to look at this P2P issue and to see what's actually going on.
3: Great. Oh, really? Oh, no way. I had not heard that. Yeah. I will be in touch with Dan to find out if that's what's going on, because to me, that is that is one of the great burning questions. And I believe that the methamphetamine that's spread from Mexico across this country is a major driving force, if not the driving force behind our mental illness that we're seeing in such intense amounts, behind the tent encampments, behind the homeless problems in so many areas, not just, by the way. In high-priced, high-housing-cost cities like San Francisco and L.A., Appalachian towns, rural New Mexico, this is everywhere that meth is.
2: Yeah. although I will say there have been people, you know, you make the big argument that this mess is driving the homelessness. And in talking to some of the researchers out there, they're a bit, And they say, obviously, it's problematic. But in terms of causal thing, they'll also point out that a place like West Virginia has got one of the lowest, you know, homelessness rates, even yeah. though it
3: has. Oh, no. Yeah. Wait, 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 wait. Time out. I read that. OK. Guy's full of shit. OK. Yeah.
2: Why is he full of shit?
3: Go. He should go to West Virginia. Do you and know why the not showing
2: of, up in the data? Then
3: the, the the homeless problem there is through the roof. Yeah. Go to Clarksburg, West Virginia. Parkersburg. Go to go to Wheeling. Go to these places where you will see vast tent encampments. You will see people out of their minds. I, I swear to God, when I read that, I want. Okay. Okay. Man, it helps. It helps to actually go to the city or the state that you're talking about. That is. No, I'm, I'm sorry. Oh. I get a little. Oh, okay, upset no, about I this, hear you. But you also make the point. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. This uh, okay. is you can find in West Virginia brand new, florid expressions of homelessness that they, yes, never had because people leave. People who are from West Virginia are all over Ohio and Indiana and various places like that. Of course, that's exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, since this meth has hit those areas, you are seeing. People who own their houses. There's no rising housing cost problem in West Virginia, and yet these folks are all just go there. Just go there and do some ethnography, as also yep. known as reporting, as this guy apparently has not done. When I read that, I was like, this guy's an idiot.
2: You also make the point though that even this, if the P two P is really the way it does, where it's knocking people out, whereas the old meth would get people up and going. And they wanted to do something, and they were always talking a mile a minute, and you know, had to be taking care of stuff. That the new meth is more almost turning them in, not zombie like, yes. but really disconnected dissociated, how to some extent that almost helps people who are homeless deal with being homeless.
3: Yes, that's the other point. That's, it pushes you into homelessness and allows you to endure the brutality of the situation in which you find. And, and one way it does that is from completely separating you from reality. And another way is, and I found this very ominous, honestly, to, to say, but it really strips people of their memories. So people don't remember major chunks of where they were. I've run into this over and over now. I said in the book, this one woman told me, a residential treatment center, people, guys coming up to her all the time going, I can't remember why I'm here. How much time did the judge give me? You know, it strips personality. It strips memory. I mean, if think about memory, memory is our personality. I mean, it's it's a major part of what makes us who we are as we remember things. And this myth has stripped that also from people very... Scary. What right. the other thing that this meth does that really adds to the complications of it all is that this meth um, makes people seriously resist leaving the tent and can. They, they feel that they've found like their community. Of course, it's a community of, of a rewired brain. So it doesn't matter how cold it gets, it doesn't matter what risk yeah. it is to, there is to my life, I'm yeah. still going to stay here. I'm not going to. The offer of shelter, the homeless shelter is like the worst place you would actually want to be if you're on that map.
2: Sam, let's come back to that, but let's tie these two stories together now. So what you describe is basically we're coming to a point, 2021, when you finish the book, 2022 now, where basically we see methamphetamine being combined with fentanyl. We see methamphetamine displacing fentanyl use. We see methamphetamine displacing cocaine use, Use being used together right? I mean, it really depends.
3: I would say, no, no, I wouldn't say it's displacing fentanyl use. And fentanyl, when it takes over, it takes over for good, um, it seems to me. Fentanyl is being mixed into these drugs. You know, it's being mixed into cocaine. It's being mixed into a methamphetamine. Though so what is happening, and I found this over and over, particularly in some of the areas where the, the opioid crisis really hit hard, like Kentucky, one, one area, I saw this a lot, is where you find people who are using Suboxone to control the opioid cravings that they how because they went through the whole pill, the heroin problem.
2: And just for our listeners, Suboxone is buprenorphine, which like methadone is a drug that's used for people trying to put a heroin addiction behind them because it's a sort of benign, more benign form of an opioid that doesn't have the risk of street drugs and has less risk of overdose. So go ahead, Sam.
3: They're using Suboxone. And then because Suboxone has not been used in ways that probably it needs to be, which is in conjunction with a variety of therapies that help you repair your life, those folks remain in the drug world just using Suboxone. And that means that they're prey to the next big drug that comes along. And for, the next, for a lot of them, the next big drug was methamphetamine because it was so cheap, still want to get high, still hanging out with the wrong people, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. And so you get this change in people. So that's also, when I saw methamphetamine in the black community and when I saw methamphetamine taken. Together, but not really together with opioids, that both of those things just shocked me. I couldn't believe I was seeing that because you've never really seen. When I was a a young crime reporter, there were two worlds in the drug world, basically in Stockton. Uh, One was a heroin world. And what was the meth world? And they didn't like each other even. You would never see the mix.
2: But you did have always heroin and cocaine going together. I mean, the speedball yeah, is a very common thing that's been going on forever and ever and ever about mixing those things. Ones and upper ones, down, they, they go better together in that respect. And, or you have people who use heroin and then they'll smoke crack. And sometimes people describe themselves as just being a heroin user or just being crack. But in fact, you'd see a lot of people who are heroin users also using the crack because that up-down thing. You know, I sometimes joke that my legal speed will we'll be after dinner, having an espresso with an after dinner drink, <laughs> a little chilling out, a little, you know, the, the moderate legal speedball. What's interesting is, is this combination. It seems to me that a few years ago, I remember somebody, I had somebody, uh, a, a physician from Rhode Island, uh, Jody Rich described in Rhode Island around twenty six, fifteen, sixteen, 15, 16. And he described this thing where all of a sudden like, a half a dozen ordinary middle-class white people not known as drug users all of a sudden dropped dead from fentanyl. And it turned out they got in some cocaine, they snorted the cocaine, and they didn't know it was in there. It's not even clear their dealer knew it was in there. So it seems like a few years ago, you had more of the kind of accidental overdose of these drugs, either the dealers accidentally putting them together or people not knowing what they're doing. But then at this point, the accidental factor is becoming less and less because it's just so omnipresent now.
3: Well, I would say yeah, that's true. Yes, I think there are more people who are now just fully addicted to fentanyl and they know what they're using, and there's a whole lot of that. On the other hand, the pills, the counterfeit pills that are coming up from Mexico are aimed at a market generally younger kids, sold on Snapchat, sold on Instagram, that kind of thing, sold by younger kids too. I mean, it's sold by people who are a bunch older than the people they're selling. Uh, two, particularly during the COVID years, you see a lot of people on their phones and there's, mm-hmm. these pills are so, so omnipresent now.
2: And the pills are combining them or are they just one or the other?
3: No, the pills have only fentanyl and, and they're counterfeit made in Mexico by the traffickers down in Mexico. They're only fentanyl. They look like Percocet, bar, oxycodone, generic 30 milligram. That's what they look perfect replicas. That's why I say that there is no such thing as recreational druggy. You can't just take one of these as a, at a party anymore. You used to. It was not a good idea back then, but people did it. But now they drop dead. And the thing is, that too, people are buying these on. The, on I don't the- know if that
2: claim holds. That you're right about the risk of fentanyl. The argument has been, when it comes to white powder drugs, you better be damn careful. When it comes to cannabis, or if you're coming from a known supply, or if you're doing—I mean, the fact of the matter is, the vast majority of people are using the vast majority, even if these pills, without dropping dead or getting killed. But the risk has definitely mm-hmm. gone up.
3: No, the risk is enormous and nationwide. I would say too, and that's the thing. Those these pills are all over there's like mm-hmm. not one area or certain areas of a state that you're known to find this i think these are they've exploded it's a thing that that it corresponds to the structure of the mexican drug <laughs> drug trafficking organization world where everybody's free to make whatever they want so long as they buy the chemicals from us and pay for the permission to do it here and you know that kind yeah. of that kind of thing
2: when we look at this broader this 100,000 overdose Last year, of which a majority of those now involve fentanyl, yeah. and a growing percentage of them involve fentanyl combined in cocaine or methamphetamine. Yeah. So we're seeing the polydrug use is out there now. We know it's even more prominent out there, as you're saying. Oftentimes, people are buying maybe cocaine, and maybe it feels different because it's got fentanyl in it. Or, or as you, and you're making the claim that they're also more likely to be getting addicted to what they think is cocaine, but it's actually developing an opioid addiction. And so what I'm wondering with all of that, I've asked people that when you combine fentanyl with cocaine or methamphetamine, does it make you more or less likely to overdose? And what people have said to me is it's hard to say. On one hand, the stimulant effect should maybe reduce the likelihood of an overdose or to counteract the effect of the fentanyl. On the other hand, the physical degradation that goes along with getting addicted to methamphetamine makes you more vulnerable to overdosing from the fentanyl. So that's a kind of, I would say it's a consensus, but it seems to be a logical explanation for some of what's going on. What are your thoughts about that?
3: Well, my thoughts are this is entirely the, the, what benefits the street dealers. The street dealers are going to add fentanyl to their cocaine. It doesn't matter what effect it has on you. They don't give a damn. They see a customer expansion vehicle through in fentanyl. You get someone addicted to fentanyl who was an occasional cocaine user could be two three times a week, could be every two weeks. And now that person is buying from you every single day, sometimes several times a day. Um, it doesn't matter that you may risk killing a few people mm-hmm. because it's a, there's a long history when people, and in, way into the heroin world, I know, for years of people hearing of somebody overdosing a certain amount of heroin and going to buy that heroin because they, they want want. That big boost that they got when they first used the drug, how it benefits you, the customer is secondary, um, not to say that it never is important. I'm just saying that it it this, yeah. this is the, the thinking so, so often among dealers. It,
2: it is, but I have to say it's also, dealers in a way are sure. also a diverse group of characters. And some of them are just fucking bastards and mercenary and they'll sell whatever. And some of them are yeah. just selling to people, you know, driving up to a corner like in the old days. Yep. And many dealers, though, they know their customers. Sometimes they're people who are quasi friends. They may be relatives. They may be selling. And they don't want those people sure. to die not just because they're customers, but because they may actually care about them. I mean, we know a lot of drug dealing networks are like that. So we know they there's another human element going into all this stuff and what I'm trying to figure out is with the overdose things going so high, it sounds like we're hitting this kind of moment where fentanyl is pervasively out there It's now throughout much of the stimulant supply and it wasn't in a way it wasn't even a few years ago and it's coming in pills and other sorts of things on the other hand, I'm also wondering, given what you say about P2P being a kind of undesirable drug in terms of what it does to you and the intensity of it and also yeah. about fentanyl being in a way at least initially less better than heroin. It suggests for the existing consuming population, we got to see how that plays out with all of them. But in terms of the new users, people coming in, the question is, is are they really going to want that stuff? But
3: here's the thing. Said, I, don't, I don't think that what you want is the, is the issue.
2: But I do think it is because ultimately, for, if you're selling something, you want something that consumers want. If you can addict them to it, all yeah. the better. But it's, it, there is some, there's a supply-demand interaction and people are always looking for something new.
3: All those kids who are buying them from Snapchat are not buying fentanyl. They don't think they're buying fentanyl. They don't want fentanyl they're being given surreptitiously given fentanyl in a xanax bar with something they think is a legitimate xanax bar so to me it's very difficult to i think when you have this kind of supply this kind of rampant impunity down in mexico it is very difficult to imagine that this supply won't be used again and again to create more customers Whether people want it or not, those kids who are buying those pills don't want fentanyl. They think they're buying Xanax bars, benzodiazepine.
2: Yeah. I I just wonder, though, about whether there's going to be such a big demand among those. Look. Obviously, there's a generation now, a younger generation, whose parents and maybe even grandparents were caught up in drugs from broken families and are feeling desperate. And that is a, a continuous opportunity for traffickers to sell drugs that are really. And that, I think, remains the market for this sort of stuff. But. Let me go to this next part, Sam, which is that one of the things where I really liked about your book, and I agree very much, is that not only are you lining up Purdue Pharma big opioid producers with the Mexican traffickers, but you're also talking about the producers of processed foods, the guys who are combining sugar-fat-salt combinations in ways that have led to an epidemic of obesity now that is probably exacting greater health care costs in America. I think it's now neck and neck with the cost of smoking in America. So we're talking about a massive cost in terms of years of life lost and stuff like that. I mean, it's hitting people later in life. It's not messing them up when they're young. In the same way, cigarettes don't mess you up when you're young, but it's really messing them up otherwise. But just... I thought you were really right onto something there about the nature of American culture, society, the food industry, maybe the gambling industry, the social media industry. Just all of that. Say a little more about that, because I think you were right onto it.
3: Yeah, it's very easy to vilify Sinaloa drug cartel, and they deserve it. But we need to understand that there are many, many entities around our economy that that really know and spend millions and millions of dollars using the best and most intelligent analysts and engineers they can find to manipulate our brain chemistry or reward pathways. And this is why, for example, fast food companies never change their logos. Those logos have become almost like triggers. And why they try to put at every intersection and every off-ramp on the freeway, you'll find fast food. And every 7-Eleven and every grocery store, you'll find the middle aisles packed with sodas. And the, just the battles for the territory is so important because they understand that we, when you have activated that reward system, people buy on impulse. And it's very hard for us to stop that. It's extraordinarily hard. for. Us. And the same with, with social media, same with chicken nuggets. I mean, chicken nuggets almost reminds me like of crack cocaine. You've taken the chicken, which if you eat it regularly, will not have this effect. And you reduced it to fat and salt. You put it in sugar, the dip and all. And you have taken the coca leaf that you can chew, and you've reduced it to, and you've just stripped it of all its, its nutrients and its fiber and all that kind of stuff, and it becomes crack cocaine. That's what, to me, that's what chicken nuggets feel like, honest to God.
2: Hey, hey you, you reminded me of Chris Rock, the comedian, had a routine I remember years ago. He goes, I think I discovered the secret ingredient in Krispy Kreme donuts, uh-huh. crack cocaine. <laughs> but it was very much literally a place opened up right near my apartment on, on
3: 72nd Street years yeah. ago, a Krispy
2: Kreme thing. And walking by yeah. it was just a the smell. They would they make sure the aroma came out and it just triggered something in my brain.
3: Absolutely. To me, the idea what I was trying to do with the book was to say, look, yeah, we've got Chapo Guzman, we've got Milo Sambala, we've got all these, these nefarious characters down in Mexico. They're not the only ones who have figured out this very intricate process of our reward pathways in our brain, and that it makes a ton of money to manipulate that and to always get better at manipulating. But I also felt in my own, one reason was that once I began to understand that, once I began to think logically about it, I began to make more liberating choices in my life. So I don't drink soda anymore. I stopped complete, almost completely. The only time I ever drink soda is when I go to a movie theater, and I've done that like twice in the last two years. Don't eat the crappy foods. I used to eat Snickers bars, M&Ms constantly. I was overweight. I get a lot more exercise because it's a liberation. The more mobile you are, the more free you are. And this is some of the ideas I wanted to tell people about just to kind of express, I guess, in my journalistic way, you know, and say that once we know this, we have, I believe, a certain defense against it particularly when you surround people, yourself with people who also believe that way. You know, you're you not around people who are constantly recovering from addiction. You get away from them, people who are still in dope. The, the same thing is true a little bit when you want to, you know, I'm going to move away from people who are not believing this way as, as well. But o- overall, I wanted to talk about how the, I see a continuum. And at the far end is the Sinaloa drug cartel. Closer to the center is Facebook software engineers and chicken nugget manufacturers and soft, way, soft, and soft drink folks and that kind of stuff. Very, very important, I thought.
2: I'll tell you there's Another point you kept, and I realize there's no way to square the circle in this stuff that you can't fit it all in. And so there are ways in which you talk about drugs at community. And one of the points you make which is true but also not true, is you'll make some broad statements about drugs being antithetical to community. But then you give examples, right? We know, in fact, that oftentimes drugs does do some of that. People can isolate into that. But we also know when we look at alcohol, there's a whole drinking culture and bars and all those sorts of things. We know that with cannabis, people like to get there. We know that people would go to, quote-unquote, shooting galleries or things like that. Or they go to even harm reduction programs, not just for the services, but for the sense of community. Even the homeless encampments, are a place where people who are all messed up on drugs can find kindred souls who can tolerate their eccentric behavior. So I, I, I don't know if I quite, yes, it does that. If I'm thinking if there's any quote unquote drug, like a thing out there in America, which is promoting isolation and antithetical to community more than any substance out there, it's probably internet-based stuff. It's the fact <laughs> yes. that we're now oh, yeah. spending six, seven, eight hours in front no of doubt. our screens that young people, they say don't read social cues anymore. In fact, sometimes people ask, why hasn't marijuana use, like with all the legalization going on, we don't see adolescent marijuana use increasing over the last eight, eight nine years. And I think one of the reasons is that maybe marijuana use doesn't go that well with being on, the, <laughs> on social media all the time. It's not, they don't yeah, go sure. together. That oftentimes people want to do that stuff socially. Yeah. And if you're spending less time hanging out, you're less likely to do that stuff. Now, what one can do as a matter of control about that. I don't really know.
3: No, I don't either. And I, you're, you're right about that. I would say sometimes of drug users, I'm, I'm very skeptical of frequently about them. I'm not a big drinker. Um, I have seen communities of drug users, of, of alcohol drinkers, very frequently devolve into not like communities of book readers, I guess. I don't know. I, I, I buy your point, though. You're, you're correct. I don't dispute it. it. I would say you have to be careful how far you draw that out because a, a tent encampment of methamphetamine users, mm-hmm. think about what that, that encampment's about. It's about mm-hmm. pimping. It's about living in utterly unhygienic place in the middle of winter, uh, not caring about anybody if that person doesn't have access to dope. There might be, to the uninitiated, it seems to me, some kind of like communal, romantic communal aspect to these encampments. If you view them in another way, you view them as, as just basically people who are slowly trying to die.
2: Yeah. Sam, I have to tell you, I mean, yes and no, once again, like I just interviewed Philippe Bougois, who's an ethnographer, one of the best in America, he'd written a book called Righteous Dope Fiends, and he spent 10 years with another guy, almost like spending thousands of hours with a community yeah. of injecting drug users living in San Francisco under the freeway and such. And what he found there was some of the most reprehensible types of behavior you could possibly imagine, and at the same time, some of the most generous, you know—sort certain norms existed. You didn't give a damn about everybody sure. else, you were hypocritical, but if somebody was dope sick, that became a priority, either complicated. Or Or that even when they would be offered, people would be offered. We know there's research showing that when you offer people supportive housing, housing housing-first programs, it helps a lot to have that kind of availability. But we also know that sometimes when people go into those programs, fall into massive depressions. They miss the community. And then even when some people are offered those programs, they may go back to the homeless encampment, even though it's, you know, cold, miserable, dirty, everything because of that sense of community there. So it's a tricky thing.
3: I I would say that that sense of community is dope induced. I don't believe that that is actually I think that's a romantic view of the tent encampment that is a very, very sinister place. It's a very scary place. It's a place where women are constantly raped and constantly pimped. Yes, there is a lot. There's, there, there may be expressions of human kindness and human decency amid all that. But I just don't see that That is makes up for the harm the massive harm that those things do oh
2: no sam totally agree I'm, j- I'm just trying to add in complicate the variables here to say that th- that these communities are there
3: no i i love it i love it and I, I i'm a reporter and i'm i'm constantly trying to complicate my own story i i don't deal in generalities even though in, in, you point to some that's not where i'm right. living in my journalism but
2: okay let me press you on this thing so in retrospect Purdue Pharma and all those other pharmaceutical companies, others that were massively over-promoting, over-advertising the opioids. Now, we know that when that was at its peak, maybe 15 years ago or so, that the number of overdose fatalities in the country was maybe 10 or 15 percent of what it is now. And it raises the question, in retrospect, right? If policymakers hadn't really responded to that. If we hadn't cracked down on those opioids, and yes, damn those guys, damn Richard Sackler and all the family around him who did that stuff, damn the Johnson Johnson, damn them, damn damn them, and let them rot in hell and be sued up the kazoo yeah. for everything. But from a policy perspective, if we had never cracked down on that stuff, Maybe that would have not opened the door for the Mexican traffickers to get first into heroin and then fentanyl, and and maybe fentanyl might never have really emerged.
3: Maybe if we lived in a country where politicians didn't have to pay attention to what is absolutely on the front of mind to the people who are who are at their in, in their churches or at their state legislatures or all, all that, you might well be right. I I don't know, but I would say that to suggest, for example. Portsmouth, Ohio, people say, gee, they shouldn't have closed down those pill mills. Ghastly places, long lines, doctors are just behaving like deep-based quacks, selling this crap. If they'd only not done that, we wouldn't have had X, Y, a variety of other things that came later. And my feeling is there is no chance anybody, the mayor on up to the governor of the state of Ohio, and the senators included, and the state legislature's. Could have or should have done anything else but close those things. It was an affront I to the agree, rule of law. Agreed. It was an I'm affront to everything. It. it was impossible to sit in by and say, you know what? Uh, Ten years from now, we're going to have you know it's it is what it is, and what it really means is that we in the future need to understand that we need to step back, far back from the idea that we have these magic bullet solutions to our problems. So the opioid epidemic really begins, in my opinion, because we were proposed this idea that you can cure human pain. Deal this deals with the central nervous system in our brains. You can deal with this with one single pill for all human beings. And Americans were bought into that. In fact, we pushed that, a lot of it. Doctors said, hey, you no, know, these pills, that's probably not right for you no 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 doc i want to be cured you give me the damn pill god damn it
2: let's take a break here and go to an ad
3: hey this is john ridley and this is matt carey documentary editor at deadline and welcome to Doc talk john we've got a hard-hitting episode today a lot of controversy
0: craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from craftsy and anytime is right to listen to iheart radio's iheart country radio discover more shows and movies for free
1: this is holly fry from stuff you missed in history class
2: Sam, if I could, there, there's a paragraph in your book here, and when I would go around giving speeches about how do we explain the opioid epidemic, and I would say, it's complicated. Yes, Purdue Pharma, but everything else. And you have a paragraph in there, which I thought said it better than almost I've ever said it or I can ever see it. I just want to read it to our listeners.
3: Okay, you read say, on, Indeed, read on. it's
2: folly to attribute this opioid epidemic to one drug, one company, one family, like the bad guys in some soap opera. So much more went into it. We Americans, so many of us, demanded convenience, to be fixed, wanting miracles, and unwilling to do the work of wellness, unwilling to change what we bought, ate, and drank. We insisted doctors cure all our pain. Pills seemed to fit the bill. Insurance companies stopped reimbursing for therapies that did not involve pills, leaving doctors with fewer tools to address pain. What's more, OxyContin did provide, Sackler Family Letters later said in a statement, life-changing relief from pain for many Americans it's unconscionable that a too common result of the opioid epidemic is that doctors cut off patients from their pain medication when they have used them without problem for years. But then if Purdue had marketed OxyContin in a more restrained way, we might be lining up to praise it. And I thought it was the most nuanced best presentation of the complexities in the <laughs> broader social cultural context that's out there. But it does lead then to the policy answers here. And so here's where you say I'm sympathetic to legalization, but nah. I'm sympathetic to decriminalization, but nah. And you actually don't even mention harm reduction almost at all in the book. It's all about drug courts and pushing people in the role of judges and punitive types of stuff. And so I it's just not want punitive. To you- it
3: is not punitive. Sorry, Ethan, that's not right. It's not punitive to arrest someone from a tent encampment with with syringes who was about to die and put them in jail where they can have a, 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 place, a, a place of recovery. And that's what, that's what I was just arguing. That is, that is compassion. The opposite. It's the opposite of compassion to say, we're going to deal with you. We're going to meet you where you are and then let you decide in, under the influence of these devastating drugs that you're going to decide when you're, you'd rather freeze to death than leave the drugs. We're going to let you decide. That's an insane attitude. Sam, fair
2: enough. Fair enough. But you do make a fundamental mistake, I think, in the book, which is that you have an entirely uncritical view of drug courts. I've been studying drug courts for 20 years. i got to tell you, for many years, a majority of drug courts would not even offer methadone maintenance as an option. No drug court judges were often not trained in dealing with addiction. If people were stumbling along the way, if somebody was smoking weed and they had gotten off heroin and cocaine, they still had to ultimately sanction them because that was technically illegal. You had judges operating within the setting of the criminal justice system. You had people imposing that 12-step. The 12-step approach was the all and end all, even though the 12-step approach, even though millions have benefited, doesn't work in the vast majority of cases. Now, of course, you're right. Drug court judges are changing. The new head of the Drug Court Association is very sympathetic to harm reduction. There are drug court judges around the country embracing needle exchange programs, at least as policy. But at the same time, you don't talk about harm reduction programs in the book. And it brought me back to the fact, you keep quoting people saying, people aren't going to get better unless you force them to grab them. And it ignores the fact that the very first, one of the very first needle exchange programs in America, Tacoma, Washington, One of the way it established itself, and this was proven over and over, was it landed up becoming the number one point of reference, recommendation into drug-free treatment programs in the city. And the fact of the matter is that, yes, some people benefit by being pushed in exactly the way you're saying, but for other people, it's not what works. For other people, it's about being in a more human environment.
3: Well, I'm saying that today the drugs on the street do not allow for that. The drugs on the street are so deadly. They're so mind-tangling and, and, and devastating to the brain. The methamphetamine is creating brain damage very clearly, according to people uh, who work with this. This is not compassion. It's not a way of saying, well, you could do whatever you like, and, and then you come to us when you need some help. Those people are dying. Meet them where they are. Sam, I know where they are. Sam, They're dying. I have to c- They're going I, crazy.
2: I have to call you out on this. You do not use the phrase harm reduction barely in the book. You do not visit a needle exchange or harm reduction program once. You don't go to those places and see how they're working or meet those people. You talk about people using the phrase at one point very nicely, any positive change. That's the phrase coined by a founder of harm reduction, Dan Big, when overdose prevention and naloxone distribution. The role of harm reduction programs in this, in meeting people where they're at, you quote people working in the system saying it's got to be any stuff. It's incremental change, of course. But that's the fundamental idea of harm reduction. And I didn't quite understand why it almost felt like you were giving the cold shoulder to harm reduction and all of this.
3: Now, well, I, I, because I think the drugs on the on the street need to change thinking. They haven't changed thinking. The drugs on the street are different from five years ago. Okay, they are very different. They're very damaging. They're deadly, and that requires a different approach. To wait for people to come to their that woman who froze to death, her mother would brought her little. The, 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 the toddler, please, this is her child. You have this home, you have this, all of this. This woman wouldn't be convinced. There was no, that's where she's at. Meeting her where she's at, meaning she's willing to freeze to death rather than spend time with her baby or child. Me, yeah,
2: Sam, I hear you. But if you haven't been there and you haven't gone to, if you had gone to dozens of harm reduction programs, in Ohio, harm reduction programs are springing up all around the state and they're dealing with exactly the sorts of people you're talking about. And there's a dynamic and an interaction that's going on there that is keeping people alive, saving people's lives, reducing overdoses. It's keeping
3: people alive until the next time. The, the, and the same
2: and, thing is true of jails because people are coming out of jails and one of the most likely times to die of an overdose is right when you come out of and a that's jail. Why, and that's been, why the,
3: the jail I talk about uses MAT for the people who are, uses MAT science people or for the Vivitrol and what have you. Of course, there's lots of people stumbling towards solutions, but my feeling is the drugs on the street have changed fundamentally the approaches that we need and to Sam,
2: use. And Sam, I have to tell you, harm reduction programs around the country and the world are evolving to deal with the drugs that are on the streets. When I go and visit the Overdose Prevention Center and needle exchange programs, I see people dealing with a population using fentanyl, using methamphetamine, and doing harm reduction in ways that are better. I'm just saying, I think your book would have benefited okay. from really looking into this piece as well. Because it's <laughs> Thank one you. thing, you talk to people <laughs> Thanks, drug Ethan. court judges, and they have their own angle, they know their things, they come from their own ideology. It's good to praise 12-step programs, but it's not the only approach. Methadone is pivotally important.
3: No, I know that. I know that. And I think what's, what's fascinating about the world, America today is how these topics are now being debated very hotly. Whereas when I was writing Dreamland, I don't remember any debate over them. It was, no one cared. There wasn't no debate. There was just nobody cared Here, so about So
2: let's them. go back where we don't have to get in one of those face so much on this thing.
3: One of the things I did like
2: was what you describe really about the evolution in quote unquote white America, right? Yep. When HIV AIDS came around and was devastating people, you know, the notion, harm reduction comes around because the old line, you have to let people bottom out before they can get better. It wasn't just more dangerous drugs like today that says bottoming out no longer makes sense. It was HIV AIDS back in the 80s and 90s that wiped out the notion or should have wiped out the notion of bottoming out. But at that time, it was more affecting black people, brown people and people and the white people who saw were much more in hiding. Now, as opioid use became much more pervasive among white people. And by the way, it continued. You know, people would talk about Staten Island, New York, which was mostly white. But they forget the point that the overdose rates in the Bronx, which is mostly black and brown, were just as high. They just, it wasn't as new. But what you talk about here is an evolution in, quote unquote, white America, where places that are coming to drug courts, which is good for them 20 years after the fact of the other places in the country, have becoming more compassionate. And just say something about how you encountered this kind of evolution there.
3: Sure. Sure. And, and I would say that, that one of the things that struck me was that early on in this, I would say during Dreamland, in fact, I came to this idea, saw this at, at work in Tennessee, in fact, with a great drug court judge, Seth Norman, out here in Nashville, now retired, who was telling me this, that, you know, once, once it was their folks getting addicted, then you, all of a sudden I began to get phone calls from state legislators. This is the judge talking, um, saying, hey, can you get my nephew or my, my donor's uh, sister or whatever, that kind of thing. And you began to see that I would say that this about the opioid epidemic on race, I would say that the opioid epidemic was hidden. People say it it only got attention once the white population, middle class white population got it, got addicted. And I would say that's not exactly true. I covered the crack epidemic that got huge press for years because Mm -hmm. it was very public. You couldn't avoid the drive-by shootings and, and all that stuff, the carjackings. It was just everywhere. You couldn't avoid it. And
2: open-air open drug sales, and open, yeah, bazaar, right? yeah, open Yeah, open-air
3: bazaars. I covered that all the time in Stockton when I was there for four years. I would say that when this opioid epidemic didn't get pressed because it affected middle-class white people, because they didn't want it to be covered, they were... From the 70s, some of the parents may have smoked weed or something, but very few had ever tried heroin, and nobody wanted that public. So you began to see, very much like the early days of the AIDS epidemic, where nobody wants HIV in their son's obituary, you begin to see died suddenly at home, uh, died of a heart attack, 27 years old, something like that. You begin to see that take place. I would say, too, that this dovetails almost exactly with the golden age of neuroscience research. So now we are learning at the same time that this is happening, really, I would just say beginning late, like late 90s, certainly into the 2000s, you're seeing huge advances in both the technology, but also the understanding of the brain. And, and and we're seeing now huge advances during these same 20 years when this opioid epidemic has taken place. I can tell you that when I was in Stockton, now again, this is anecdotal is my, my experience, but it was very clear to me. Stockton's one of the most integrated cities in California. It was 40% white, 6% everything else. I do not remember a very large Southeast Asian community, a Latino community, sizable black community. Nobody during the crack epidemic, black people, Latinos, anybody wanted treatment. Nobody, there was no constituency for that. This was 88, 89, 90, 91, 92. They wanted people thrown in jail. That's it. And so the change that we're seeing now has absolutely something to do with race, in my opinion. It's white people developing a consciousness of how this must have this feels and how therefore expecting some Christian charity, as I said in the book, that they didn't express when it was another other groups that were being more, more affected than they were. But I would also say it's important to understand that we have a revolution in neuroscience understanding in those years. There is nothing remotely comparable in the opioid epidemic to the street violence that was taking place during the crack epidemic. So you have, have, yes, you have this fascinating change, particularly in red areas, I would say. It's just an amazing transformation of people's thinking because, yes, it's their kids, it's their nephews, it's their brothers and sisters and grandparents and whatever that's getting addicted. But I would stop at generalizations about that because there's a lot of nuance. And so we were talking about nuance earlier, very correct.
2: Well, well, Sam, I'll tell you, I have like three reactions. One is, I mean, you and I both got into this drug issue back in the 80s. So we both go back a long time. And what I recall back then, it wasn't that black people didn't want more treatment. My recollection, because I was debating Jesse Jackson, debating Charlie Rangel on, you know, the TV shows and all this sort of stuff back then. And what I found the difference was that those guys, they wanted the drug war. But they said, but we also want resources and treatment and blah, blah, blah. And the Republicans and others were saying, eh, the hell with treatment. It was almost like lip service. So there was some support for that. But there was also, in terms of the opioid issue, there was a kind of anti-methadon sentiment back then. There was an anti-harm reduction sentiment back then. And the black community evolved more rapidly than the white community. The second thing I'll say is that you're right about the neuroscience, the breakthroughs and all these important ways. What's sad and disappointing is that with all this neuroscience breakthrough, there has been essentially nothing new to emerge in terms of drug <laughs> treatment, like methadone, yeah. buprenorphine, naltrexanoloxone. They all go back That's 50 true. years. The national druggy business poured billions into it with nothing to come out of it, which suggests that when we're looking for the solutions to drug addiction, it may have a lot less to do with neuroscience and a lot more to do with the broader conditions. Part of what explains why we see these problems much less in Europe. But the last thing I'll say is what really hit me, what you're saying about red America, the, the white population, it was during the Republican primaries back in 2016, 15, maybe late 15, 2016, when all of a sudden you saw it, like in the public forum, the opioid issue popping up as a point of discussion in Republican communities. And where just saying, I'm going to shut the border with Mexico, no longer was an effective selling point where people were looking for something more. And then fast forward to 2018, when there's no bipartisanship, but actually a relatively decent congressional bill to deal right. with the opioid crisis passes with bipartisan support and is signed by Donald Trump. So you see this evolution in a way. Absolutely. You see it in Mike Pence deciding he's going to support a needle exchange program when needle he was a governor. Needle exchange
3: in Scott County. Yeah. Right. So
2: there is that thing. And I think there's this line when you say that what happened with this thing is it promoted a greater sense of empathy and a greater openness to new ideas in that the type of stuff we'd seen in urban America and on the coast and in certain big cities back going back to the 90s and the aughts, we now see happening in these parts of America.
3: And in rural America and suburban. And yeah, I mean, I remember one person uh, telling me in a rural part of Ohio that his parents, he was a cop, but his parents could never get over the idea that there was heroin in their, in their area. This was something for Cleveland. It was something for Chicago. It was that kind of thing. And, and there be in these areas, you began to see this now. Is there a racist p- component to that? I'm quite sure there is, and no doubt about it. On the other hand, how often do you care uh, when a plane goes down in Malaysia? Do we care? No, we didn't know anybody in, on that plane in Malaysia. And so, you know, it's part of there's a comp. It's, I, I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant to get too quickly into these like blanket condemnations that, that people want to get into, even though. I have to say, and I'm going to say it very immodestly, but I will say it because if I don't defend myself, nobody else is going to. And that is that the first person to report on that very phenomenon was me in my book Dreamland, when I was talking with exactly the, the Judge Seth Norman, and I went two chapters about how all of a sudden you saw white rural white America begin to ask for treatment, and you begin to see a change, and all of a sudden he's the best buddy of the Republican Speaker of the House in Tennessee and all this kind of stuff. Not that I don't want to report on that. I have already. I was the first one to do it, I believe. I would say that, that there's a lot of nuance to it, too. And I do believe that the neuroscience is part of it because now we're able to see the brain in action, in a sense, see the blood flows on this drug and on that thing and on prayer and on storytelling and all the rest. It's an amazing thing to work with. Yeah,
2: but I mean, it also makes the point that a lot of things we associate with drug use, we see, I mean, it's just like the same parts light up when you're watching a TV program or playing tennis. There are all sorts of activities which light up parts of the brain, as do drugs. It's why, for example, gambling, right? Why gambling and gambling addiction so much resemble drug use and drug addiction. And it's also why, as you say, from the supplier side, the casinos, as well as the manager of lotteries, have figured out how to appeal to the addictive personality and all this sort of stuff. So it is that stuff. But so to bring this to a conclusion here on the policy issue, right? So, you know, on the legalization thing, it's funny when people ask me, because I'm so much identified as an advocate of legalization, and I say, well, I'm not a libertarian legalizer. And they say, what's your greatest hesitancy about legalization? And my response is, look what happened with food. It's exactly what, you know, I've been saying this for years, the sugar, fat, salt thing, to imagine big multinational corporations going to work the way the Mexican drug traffickers have on the underground chemists, but at a level of sophistication. But on the other hand, there are steps short of legalization. And so you now have a growing discussion, say, around British Columbia and parts of Canada around safe supply. And it's basically making the argument, yeah, we can throw people in jail, we could do the drug court, we can offer this and that. But given that there are some people who are absolutely committed to using these drugs from the black market, Aren't we better off trying to find a way to allow these people access to the drugs that they want in such a way that, without making it available to the broader population, to at least? So you're have saying. The
3: thing- let me ask you though: Are you saying then we should think of ways to pro- providing fentanyl to people who want it? To me, that's a. a I, I'm not. I don't think a lot about legalization. You think all about it all the time. That's great for a lot of reasons. Probably too complicated again to get into right now. But my feeling is before we do any of that. I would like to see us legalize marijuana in a way that did not create big pot, right? Which is what we're doing right now.
2: But that's, that's the impossible, right? Because I was always saying, like, I was one of the key people involved in moving the country towards legalization of marijuana with the ballot initiatives and all that sort of stuff. And my line was, look, I'm not in favor of the marlborization of Budweiser in America. You know, I'm a small is beautiful kind of guy. And let's try to make that happen. But we live in one of the most dynamic capitalist society in history. And inevitably, it's going to head that direction. I'm happy when I see efforts and, you know, my organization, I were involved in trying to draft these things to try to limit that, to give a foot up to the small entrepreneurs, to try to have some social equity and all this sort of stuff. But we have to be reasonable. And ultimately, I would say, give me a choice between a marijuana prohibition world with 700,000 people being busted, people being killed, marijuana of unknown potency, and purity, people who have medical needs who can't get it safely and responsibly all sorts of stuff, or one where even it's run ultimately by big marijuana and there's you have big Starbucks or big alcohol or whatever, I'd say that other one is a lesser evil. And there's only so much you can do on that. And when I say legalizing, right, I'm talking about not selling it over the counter, this sort of stuff. The question is, if you look at the heroin prescription programs that popped up in Switzerland 30 years ago and that are now in Germany and the Netherlands, Denmark, UK, Canada, Going to open up in Norway soon, which is the results. They've been studying now for 20 to 30 years. And they are clearly where people go to a clinic, they get to use pharmaceutical grade right. heroin up to three times a day. They have access to services and all the other sorts of things. Yeah. These are people for whom methadone didn't work, who had tried everything mm-hmm. else. And you see really impressive results in terms of people stabilizing their lives, sometimes right. even getting jobs, getting housing, reducing their violence and crime, all that sort of stuff. Now, whether that's possible in some respect with fentanyl or whether one should look at whether or not people are using fentanyl can right. be moved into uh-huh. less dangerous forms of opioids in different yeah. forms seems to me one of the options. You still have to hold people responsible. I'm not somebody who says you're a drug addict and you're going out and mugging people and therefore just give them a slap on the wrist and let them go. I don't believe that. This is about uh-huh. how you deal with people. The problem is, I
3: would say, I follow what you're saying. The follow- I think what we're seeing as it's played yeah. out in, in, in certain cities of the country is that exa- that's exactly what's happening. Well, you know, restorative justice, he kills a person. Okay. You know, to me, I, I don't, the way you're explaining it is the policy you would espouse. Sounds fine. Sounds, sounds reasonable. And I'm, I, I, have, I don't think about these topics too much. People think of me as an opioid reporter. I think of myself as very differently. But I've had other interests in my life that, uh, in journalism, that is way away from all this. Okay. So it's not, it's not like a major issue for me, but I think that the way this is being laid out in person, on the ground with real-world policies is exactly what you just described, Is it people getting mugged and nobody does anything. People in, in encampments behaving like just out of their minds and nobody does anything about these encampments. Oh, well, because of, it's a community, it's cool. It, to me, I feel like this is the issue, that, that it, when you see it played out, mm-hmm. when you see it on the ground, when you see the real-world consequences of it, it, you don't develop any constituency for the, the ideas that you're supporting.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, Sam, look, I mean, I'll tell you, I mean, probably where I agree and disagree with you, but also agree and disagree with many of my allies in all of this is I have a fairly you know, conservative view. I think that people need to be held responsible for their actions insofar as they harm other people. And if you're stealing, if you're committing violence, if you're hurting other people, you need to be held responsible for that. But at the same time, I'm saying, if the issue is your commitment to using certain types of drugs, well here, on the one hand, I'm going to give you access to these drugs you want. You want these drugs, I'm going to give them to you in a pure form, either, either they're for free or they cost a few bucks or whatever, but here's the drugs, I'm going to offer you some services, some help so that you can get out of this life, because we know that a lot of people who are addicted, whether it's cigarettes or whether it's heroin or fentanyl, yeah. go through periods where they say, I want to get out of this, and it's really a two-pronged approach that says, here's... You want all this stuff? Here's the good. Here's the past. Services. Here's the drugs. But if you hurt people, we hold you responsible. And it's that combination that I think.
3: And, and here's the thing, though. Let me just finally say because I do have to leave soon. It's been a great conversation. I really am. I really appreciate it, and I really appreciate your thoughtful reading of my book. And it's it's wonderful. I, 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 I'm happy to do that. But it, to me, it, I don't see some of these harder drugs, and particularly fentanyl and methamphetamine, as involving any rational desire or not. It's not you choosing anymore to use these drugs. These drugs are completely in charge of your life. Completely. Sam, I
2: believe you. All I'm saying is I remember when people said that about heroin, and it turned out not to be all that true. I remember when people said that about crack. Well, I have, to... I have
3: not met any heroin addict No, but I'm saying back in the day,
2: I... right? And so I'm saying, yeah, fentanyl's here, methamphetamine's here. I agree with you. These Seem much more problematic. But whether it negates everything that we've learned about drugs over the history of human society, I don't know.
3: We've never known a drug like fentanyl on the streets of the country. And I would say one like methamphetamine either. I, I love some of your ideas. I honestly do. And I think that they're very well explained. But I also see what those ideas translate into. And what they then do is undermine any constituency for of support for the ideas that you have and we're seeing that right now in San Francisco in LA
2: but sam i got i got i mean in the end when you're asked where does this all come down to and at one point you say the solutions will come only when Mexico and US work together or you say Mexico must stand up and deal with corruption. And I'm yes. looking. you got to be kidding me. No, I'm not. When do you, I mean, and then and maybe the Messiah will come That is absolutely first. what needs to happen. Uh, uh, I'm Mexico, no, of course.
3: Me- Mexico has been, has had endemic corruptions formation, and it needs to deal with it.
2: But Sam, that's the point. You're saying something has to happen. You're saying Ethan, all your things, but the politics aren't there. And I'm saying Sam, what you come down to, like Mexico, and you just have to work together, crochet. Well, like when, like after the Messiah comes the fifth time. No, no, no. These I, things well, I,
3: I just you have to live in Mexico to know this can can happen. Of course, it does need a totally different perspective from the, Ma- the United States as well. We have to understand the importance of collaboration with Mexico, sees with collaboration with the United States. And that that is, to many parts of Mexico, that is an enormously beneficial thing. Now, there are people who will still go back to the same Yankee go home kind of idea. But uh, to me, this is fundamental, fundamental. It's fundamental for Mexico. The people that will benefit most from this are Mexicans, not Americans.
2: Sam. I don't yeah. see it, man. Okay,
3: fine. I don't see it. And as you point out- Well, we definitely needed a different president than the one we had before. We definitely need a different president well, well, than yes. the one who's currently in charge in Mexico.
2: Yeah, but I say, given, as you say, these drugs can be produced anywhere. The materials are widely available. Underground chemists are proliferating. Yeah, but, but it's um, a very
3: different thing. It's a very different thing when those drugs are produced right next to you in a country which, which you have a free trade agreement and 2,000 mile border. That's a very different thing. We didn't get to mass coverage of the United States with China sending in pounds of fentanyl through the mail.
2: Yeah. But then again, there is the Internet and there is the dark net and there are these ever growing number of designer drugs. And- yeah.
3: But you're, you're talking about. But again, you're you're I, I, forgive me, Ethan, but it, you're you're sounding now like the people every time there's a mass shooting. I've covered seven mass shootings, by the yeah. way, in my career. Okay. Every time there's a mass shooting, people propose, we should do this, we do that. And then the argument is it'll never solve the problem. No, it won't solve the problem. It's not on one, zero or a hundred percent. It'll go a long way to curtailing the problem, making it a little bit more manageable, forming constituencies for more action, et cetera, et cetera. No. Sam-
2: you bring up the point, you talk about analogy to, I think, was it tobacco or alcohol, and you point out some, one of the people you interview talks about the need to add friction to the system. So we know in the areas of tobacco control and alcohol control, that if when you impose higher taxes, time and place restrictions, it actually does make some difference. But the costs of imposing those restrictions are fairly minimal. There's a regressive effect on people who are heavy consumers, for better and for worse. But when it comes to a prohibitionist system, imposing friction is much less cost-free. It's not just that it costs a lot of money and that it inevitably drains billions of dollars, but that when you do that, you generate dynamics in the black market that creates also ulcers or problems as well. And so I'm saying that the notion of that we need to keep the friction of the system, given the evident failures on the supply side for so long, so long, in my view, it seems to me we should be shifting vastly, overwhelmingly, to the demand side and the harm reduction side of this thing. That ultimately, with more
3: decriminalization, you know, with more legalization, you get more, far more use of very dangerous drugs. And I don't think there's a safe way, There's not, I don't believe there's a safe way actually, to use fentanyl.
2: Not necessarily. Look at marijuana, and we don't see adolescent use going up. We see it going up among elder people, like people our age and maybe they're switching it out for alcohol. So it's not necessarily the case that happens. It is to say that a pragmatic, sensible regulatory policy needs a lot more room to run while we acknowledge <laughs> the frustration of things. It,
3: it may well be, but what I say, 100% correct. I don't, I, don't, I don't argue with you on that at all. But what I have seen when this gets into the area of real-world policy yeah. implementation is it's a complete goddamn disaster. Look at San Francisco with, the, with their DA there. It's just insane what's going on in that town. And the guy, same with the guy in L.A. I, I, I don't disagree with the fundamental desires and some of the policies you're talking about. But they have to be implemented in a way that people can point to and say, yeah, that is a yeah. success.
2: I know. And, on the other hand, methamphetamine. That's San, a, San Francisco you know I'm and L.A. may have gone far too far one way. But when you look at what America did with mass incarceration in response to drug hysteria, if you look at world sure, records sure, and these sorts sure. of things. Anyway, listen, I know you got to go. I got to go. I have loved our conversation. I really liked your Me book. Me too. Really great talking yes. with you, Matt.
3: Sometime we'll we'll meet in person and have some, uh, uh, some. I'll have some tea, have some coffee.
2: I, I look forward to that. All right, brother. If you're enjoying Psychoactive, please tell your friends about it. Or you can write us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-ZERO. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman, It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Adelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian. And a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Next week, in celebration of 420, I'll be talking with Chef Nikki Stewart, one of America's great cannabis chefs, who's been curating dinners for Dave Chappelle, Snoop Dogg, and many other celebrities.
1: The relationship with cannabis and food, and what I feel like it should be with everyone, even if you're just a novice, is to be able to have cannabis as an ingredient in your pantry, in your home, and not be afraid of adding it to food or any sort of wellness regimen in regards to just being a complete whole <laughs> holistic like person and and keeping that in the vibe subscribe to psychoactive
2: now so you don't miss it
0: Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy, and anytime is right to listen to iHeart Radio's iHeart Country Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free.